0: Season 2, Episode 2 of the Camwiss Podcast. I'm Sam Kindick, and in this episode I talked to Dr. Andrew Johnston, Associate Professor of Classics at Yale University. Andrew won the 2019 Camus First Book Award for his book Sons of Remus, Identity in Roman Gaul and Spain, which was published by Harvard in 2017. We discussed the book, Andrew's career, and his current project on Roman Kingship. Here's Dr. Andrew Johnston. Today I have with me here Dr. Andrew Johnston, Associate Professor of Classics at Yale University. Thanks for having me, sir. Yeah. And and you are the winner of the first, the Camo's first book award um, for your book, Sons of Remus, um, Identity in Roman Gaul in Spain, which was published by Harvard in 2017. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. I want to get to the book. I want to talk about the book. But first, I'm curious as just how you got into classics and, and once in the classics, how you got to identity in the Roman provinces.
1: Yeah, I guess for me, the answer to both of those questions is kind of one and one the same. And so my mom, uh, I guess, uh, to whom I credit uh, so many things about uh, uh, who I turned out to be, but it was really my mom um, who kind of uh, on a... Uh, fluke thing she worked at a bookstore, and one day she brought home a lobe copy of caesar's gallic wars uh and because she thought you know I might find it interesting I was interested in history, and this was when I was about maybe thirteen or fourteen um and it really just it rocked my world i mean it was you know for a thirteen year old boy it's a compelling war story um Caesar was a recognizable figure, and i, I didn't know that he'd ever written anything. Um, and so I really just um, became fascinated by this by this book. I read it and reread it. But increasingly, as I read it, I guess I found myself interested by kind of the other side of the story in, in two ways. One was, I guess, most obviously the Latin on the other side of the page. I, I would find myself sort of squinting at the Latin and looking back and forth between the Latin and the English, trying to see if I could find any equivalencies or make any connections uh, and so that really kind of stirred an interest in me um, in sort of getting at Caesar's original words. And I think that's one of the beauties of, of the Loeb Library in general is I, I think I'm sure I'm not the only person to have had this experience. Of, uh, you're not. I can, uh, I, I can vouch for <laughs> the, the
0: usefulness of the Loeb's. Yeah, yeah
1: it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, but then I guess the, um, the second part of that other side of the story that I became interested in is... Um, you know we have all of these hundreds of names of you know gallic individuals or communities or tribes uh, and i increasingly found myself wanting to know more about them than i did about caesar and so um so i guess from there you know really my passion for roman history was third, my passion for latin um, my high school—I went to a public high school—didn't offer any Latin, so I would sort of read a teach-yourself Latin book behind my calculus textbook, <laughs> uh, and was caught on on more than one occasion. And then when I got to to college at the University of Illinois, and I went in as a as a history major, and and then started taking. Um, Greek my first year with David Sanson uh, and uh, and yeah was was really hooked and and then and had enough latin to um, to uh, start to do that at the, the intermediate level as well and, and then it just kind of spiraled from there so i, I always remained interested in in the Gauls and I, um, I guess in some ways it's not, not very interesting because the first thing that got me into it, you know, uh, almost 20 years ago is kind of still my my abiding passion.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I had a similar sort of, you know, I got into classics through Ovid and I'm still doing Ovid. So I, I get it. I get yeah. you know that, that initial hook um, can be powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, when I went to,
1: to Illinois, you know, again, I should really thank, you know, my teachers there, Ralph Matheson, especially, because um, he sort of, you know, in talking with him, maybe my sophomore year he 's kind enough to to meet with me, and so telling him that I was really interested and in in Gaul, and, and I had a little bit of Latin, and he had a stack of photocopies of the, of the CIL, the Corpus Inscriptionum Latinarum, uh, and that was really kind of the the thing that sort of, uh, fanned the flames and, and gave me the evidence that I'd always been, been looking for, you know, since I first read Caesar's Gallic Wars, and so it's kind of that right constellation of, of things, and and then, you know, when I went to grad school, I thought I'd maybe move away from the Western provinces and work on something else. But they, they drew me back, and that's when I ended up writing my, my dissertation in the first book of mine, So
0: Awesome. So you sort of started down this path. I mean, your first exposure to Latin was this, this Caesar, and mm. you, know, you stuck with Caesar, and you stuck with the um, the Roman provinces. What about the provinces? What about these non-Roman peoples, really? really excited you I think it was I think it was the curiosity
1: to uh, to know more about the experiences of these people who had their worlds turned upside down uh, by by men like Caesar uh, I think I was always I um, Maybe moving around a lot uh, as a kid was formative in that sense because I was always interested in um, in communities and people who had a sense of rootedness. Of, yeah. You know, when someone asked them, you know, oh, where are you from? You know, they they knew, right? They had a community to which they belonged, and and I guess uh, you know, I, I never really quite and maybe still today I don't really know how to answer that question when someone says, where are you from? You know, because there are lots of places that I've lived that are meaningful, um, and so. I guess in that sense what we write about says as much about us as it does about the subjects and that we're trying to understand but I think that was it was that interest in sort of communities and identities and and uh, in the voices and the experiences of these people that from my first exposure to latin um, uh, or to roman history I had a hard time getting at uh, so I think it was uh, it was a combination of of both of those things and then um, Really, once I discovered epigraphy, uh, I really found that way of accessing, almost without any mediation, the voices of these people who are... Much farther down, you know, the the social spectrum, the hierarchy, than you know our literary sources normally preserve, uh, and being able to see the ways that they chose to represent themselves, uh, the ways in which they clearly are aligning themselves with sort of aspects of this new culture that's coming in, but at the same time hanging on to other things, um, the kind of inherent interdisciplinarity uh, of. Inscriptions that they are archaeological artifacts that have writing on them, but oftentimes they also have images. Um, Sometimes, you know, when they're verse inscriptions, there's engaging with, you know, Latin poetry and. Um, and I think the interdisciplinarity of classics is one of the things that drew me to, to study this in the first place. And so, um, in a way, inscriptions distill all of those yeah. things that I love about the discipline, as well as provide some of the best insight into the questions that, um, that I was most excited to, to try to answer.
0: Cool. What other um, sort of sources are you relying on um, beyond inscriptions? I mean, obviously, with Caesar, we've got this beautifully like presented mm-hmm. literary account. Do we have anything like that for the provinces? Or, or where else are you looking beyond inscriptions?
1: So you write that we don't have a lot of obvious literature produced by provincials. So a lot of the task that I set myself was to try to read creatively in between the lines of literary sources produced by more hegemonic voices um, and to see the ways in which um, these sources can still provide evidence into local social organization um, or at least illuminate some of the strategies of representation and, and, and representational dominance and um, and so from things like ethnography or geography natural history um, I still think there's a lot that can be can be gleaned from these sources and um, even though um, oftentimes they're then filtered through these Greek and, and Roman narratives or voices or worldviews and um, sometimes the kernels of local histories or local mythology are, um, are there and disentangling the one from the other is not yeah. an easy task but um, but I think it, with some caution it, it can be done. Um, so there's that dimension you know we do have you know a few um, provincial literary works Marshall, I think, is often underappreciated, maybe in general although there's been a lot of great uh, recent work on Marshall, but I think um, that he is a Celtiberian living at Rome uh, is, uh, I think uh, is sometimes an aspect of his poetic identity that isn't as as foregrounded um, in comparison to other aspects of, sort of his social identity at Rome, you know, his uh, affectation of kind of the the humble uh, poet the mendicant uh, um but there's a lot in his poetry that i think is deeply revealing um, of of his celtiberian identity and um, there's a tradition that goes back into the early 20th century of um kind of actively working to suppress this aspect of Marshall to explain it away and say well his parents were Roman colonists right so he's not really a Celtiberian yeah. and trying mm-hmm. to discount the things that he he tells us about himself um, and, and to try to pull him back into the sphere of kind of good sort of Roman poetry um, and this has been done with other poets like Catullus uh, too we want to sort of sanitize him and um, mm-hmm. but he, he tells us you know that he's an outsider at Rome yeah. and, um, and so I think trying to l- appreciate these, these aspects of, of the literary text that, that we do have um, and then sort of go maybe later and then sometimes one would go into late antiquity where we have more, more poets like Ausonius um, whose Gallic identity is, is very important to him. Um, and then, of course, there's a slew of material evidence, you know, archaeological evidence that fleshes out this, this picture as well. So it's um, with a question like this, beggars really can't be choosers. You yeah. kind of have to take all <laughs> of the evidence uh, at your disposal because um, there's not as much as one might want. But
0: uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the sort of the art historical ele- uh, evidence and the, um, the architectural evidence um sounds great you've got this example in your book of this chief at Mediolanum who has this funerary relief with with Romulus and Remus mm. you know being suckled by the she-wolf and this this tremendous sort of is appropriation the right word i mean this 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 using of this icon for the roman identity right the sort of the core of the roman identity is you know being being used by these provincial mm. leaders
1: yeah, I think appropriation um, is is a useful term um, because I think that's that's a lot of what you see, and in um, as much as appropriation um, involves giving new meanings often sometimes problematic meanings or offensive meanings um but it always involves sort of taking something from sort of one culture of one group um by another group and then investing it with new new meanings um I think that's a lot of what you see going on and that's um I think that's a story that I became increasingly interested in as I worked on the project is um, not just the sort of if there is such a thing, the kind of pure localism, right—the um, the independent memories and the rejection of Rome—but actually, how locals um, appropriated aspects of Rome and gave them new local meanings, and, and it's not just about fitting the locals into Roman frameworks, but about fitting the Romans into local frameworks uh, as well. And so um, there are these strange stories, you know, that one can point to of, you know, uh, locals worshipping the Roman wolf, right? There are there are those examples uh, um, that you you mention uh, from from Aquitania of uh, of people kind of doing recognizably Roman things with the she wolf, kind of putting them up as an emblem of that they're kind of, kind of a cultural insider. But things like worshiping the wolf, you know, it's it falls in this weird in between space that that's neither a recognizably Roman practice nor a kind of traditional local practice, right? The Romans have this she-wolf and it's important to a myth that they tell about themselves, but it's not an object of cult. Um, And in the same way, these locals didn't, you know, worship the wolf before uh, contact with the Romans. So it's almost a cargo cult scenario, and where there's a misunderstanding—whether this is intentional or unintentional—a misunderstanding of Roman culture. Um, but then the way in which that's integrated and, and made meaningful locally um, is, is, I think, a really—it's a really strange story. Where I think it shows the complexity of, uh, of provincial responses to, to the Roman Empire.
0: And this is probably overly basic, but I mean, just by associating yourself with Rome is advantageous yeah. for, for leaders, for um, for communities. And and
1: I absolutely agree. And I think we talk a lot about sort of these local elites wanting to integrate themselves with Rome or sort of win favor with you know the Romans, whoever the Romans are in these scenarios or whatever we mean by that. But I think a lot of it is really about projecting power and, and consolidating your social role locally, right, to to demonstrate that you're conversant in the, um, the culture or the symbols um, of, uh, of this foreign ruling power um, can help you garner cultural capital locally. And so um, I think at the end of the day, like in the modern world, all politics is local in the Roman Empire. And, and I think this, this makes the story of... You know the spread and the adoption of Roman culture even more interesting when we think uh, in these terms about the way that sort of locals are sort of filtering in certain aspects of, of Roman culture to reinforce um, their their traditional social roles within their communities in a in a changing sort of Mediterranean world.
0: Yeah, that's that's so cool. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of an example that's it's even later, you know, sort of late medieval, early Renaissance. You know, when you have these Italian states, they're sort of mm. warring, and they they want to associate themselves with this, you know, classical Roman past. And Absolutely. so, you know, at Siena, right, yeah, you know, this is the story of you know, the, uh, Sensius and Ascius, yeah. who are the, the sons of Remus, literally, yeah. Um, and you know, they they founded Siena, but it's it's not an old tradition; it's a you know a Renaissance tradition that you know they they want to connect themselves um, to that that Roman past, and so it's it goes you know out uh, spatially right to the provinces and then temporally you know the farther you get from you know the roman empire people and obviously we've got so many connections right you know yeah. the holy roman empire everyone wants to be roman at a, in a sense yeah everyone wants to to siphon
1: off that yeah. that power and that that rome possesses and and i think the the siena example is is so eloquent and i mean we i think we see similar things uh, in in the provinces as well but The Siena example really speaks to that dynamic, right? That um, it's partly about attaching yourself to Rome um, and its sort of history, its significance, um, um, its power, its as a source of legitimacy, and all of those things. But at the end of the day, it's really about. Telling a story about what Sienna is, where Siena comes from, what does it mean to be Cienese, mm. Um, um mm. That um, it's a divergent story from Rome, right? That it's the it's the bastard brother, yeah. you know, the the younger brother. Um, uh, the younger twin um, that um, is their founding father and um, in fact the the title of, of my book you know takes takes its name from a similar case study um, of kind of um, uh, attaching yourself to the legacy of Remus in this sort of the, the creation of these new stories that are are sort of somewhere between the local and the Roman and so I think this is a much you right this is a much longer um longer theme in, in the history of, of Western Europe or maybe the history of the Mediterranean um, than is sometimes realized. Yeah, That's, okay. that's interesting.
0: Perfect. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what's next for you, what your next project is and, um, you know, what you're working on now. So the project
1: I'm working on now is something totally different um, than, than the first book in most ways. It's a study of uh, Roman attitudes toward kingship uh, and specifically the fear of kingship, which um, I argue is a defining, if not the defining, feature of, of Roman culture. Um, so it starts from the mid Republic, um, the fourth century BCE, which I argue is a really sort of formative period for Roman attitudes toward um, both kingship in general, but also their sort of semi legendary kings uh, of their own past. Uh, and then it kind of traces um, the development and the evolution of these attitudes toward kings through the late republic um, uh, and into the imperial period, uh, which I think is, a, um, is something that we don't point to often enough. That, you know, under the emperors, right, this is a monarchy. Everyone acknowledges that this is a monarchy we can call. Emperors like Domitian, Dominus, and Deus, um, and we get increasingly comfortable with this, you know, um, in the Tetrarchic period. But but Rex rem- always remains taboo, right? And why should the Romans police this taboo, police this word in their political culture when it's the it's the default word for a monarch? They use it to refer basically to the monarchs of every other yeah. you know state uh, that they that they confront, but. Um, you know, uh, even though they worship their emperors, um, they do obeisance to them, uh, and uh, and increasingly they align their uh, the practice of their monarchy with the sort of states that they've sort of traditionally painted in these kind of orientalizing terms. Uh, that is always a bridge too far. Is to call the emperor a king and. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested in, in why that taboo persists in the discourse around that. So it, the book to, tries to sort of tell this big story um, about this, and this idea in, in Roman political culture, which, you know, at the end of the day, outlasts traditional religion, the old aristocracy, and the republic, you know, even the centrality of Rome itself within the empire, you know, in, in late antiquity. So much has changed, but, you know, one thing that, you know, uh, I don't know Symmachus at the end of the fourth century, and and Cicero would both see as a as a common feature of sort of their idea of Rome is that to be Roman is not to be ruled by kings. And, yeah. And so I think this is a, a hopefully an interesting <laughs> idea to
0: explore. No, it sounds it sounds really good. I mean, that's sort of one of the first things I remember from my my you know first Latin class in college was you know Rex is a dirty word. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's and so when when do the kings start? I mean, you've got Romulus, right, who's a king. You've got Mm -hmm. Numa, who's a king. And these are, you know, important, venerated figures. I mean, when when do the kings start being bad? Is it the the Etruscan kings sort of coming in from out of town, or...? I think... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, I think the the short answer is I don't know, and I don't know if,
1: if the Romans knew. Um, I think definitely in Roman narratives around kingship, you can perceive this shift with the, the Tarquins, um, which I think is largely colored by... And um, by the last Tarquin in the tradition, certainly. Um, but I don't, I don't know if it's, um, it's a dynamic around foreignness versus Romanness. Because if you think about um, some, some of the later stories um, or reflections that we have from Romans on their own kings, right? Claudius's speech um, preserved in the inscription from, from Lyon, um, he boasts, uh, you know, that almost all of the kings were, were foreigners um, and that this is a strength of Rome. You know, Numa was Sabine, um, Ancus Marcius, you know, was a Latin. And, um, and then, um, so all the kings had their origins from, from elsewhere. And I think this is an important myth, um, but I think there's also probably a historical reality that that underlies that a sort of kernel of truth. That probably the kings were some sort of compromise between powerful patrician clans, you know, um, in the archaic period, you know, so that no one of them became predominant. They said, "Well, let's let's appoint an outsider yeah. um, to sort of be a power broker," you know, however you think of the the kings and christopher smith you know has has done some great work and he has a big project um uh, on on sort of uh, the nature of roman kingship and i'm I'm really looking forward to um to seeing kind of how he tries to understand the nature of um of monarchy in this period And, and um but yeah i think the roman stories about this period which are what i'm primarily interested in are sort of always ambivalent, you know, the tradition of the kings is primarily positive, right? I mean, if you if you strip away the last Tarquin, you know, each of them is reman- remembered as a sort of founder in turn of different parts of the Roman state, different parts of the Roman constitution. Um, there are statues of the kings prominently on the capital line, you know, well into the imperial period. Um, and so that seems kind of in tension with uh, this taboo around yeah. around kingship. And, and I think the Romans are always grappling with that. You know, the, the sort of you know, Republican aristocrats increasingly sort of, you know, take on the trappings of Hellenistic monarchy. You know, when they're in the East, they're like Flamininus, they're worshipped, you know, uh, as gods in the ways that Hellenistic monarchs were. Um you know, they preside over sort of uh, um, sort of pan Greek uh, events in the manner of kings, but then when they come back in, into the city, how do these aristocrats reintegrate themselves into yeah. the Senate? And I think this is a dynamic that must and give rise to a lot of the um, the sort of establishment of these constraints of Roman political culture and, and sort of makes kingship a, an even more present threat than it maybe was in
0: an earlier period. Yeah, and you can you can sort of see the Romans struggling with that tension between, you know, kings even with you know with Romulus, right? The apotheosis of Romulus or was it the murder of Romulus? Right, yeah. you know, if, if something happened, either really good or really bad, um, and we, we're not sure which.
1: No, absolutely, and 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 you see the stories that <clears throat> accrete around these these figures like Romulus, you know, and. Um, it's been suggested, I think, compellingly that the, the sort of story of Romulus' murder by the senators because he was becoming increasingly tyrannical is, is relatively late. Maybe Licinius Machair in the aftermath of, of Sulla is the first um, to, to sort of put this interpretation out there. And so you see how the kings are always good for the Romans to think with, right? They're in them you can explore a lot of different problems um, and they're very evocative um, figures and, and malleable and um, you can almost like action figures right? you can have them do different things to sort of um, to explore different different outcomes different political configurations different ideologies and um, and so, yeah, I think that's a great example to point to. And then, and then with obviously the rise of Caesar and, and his heir, um, it, it takes on a whole new series of complications. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, awesome. That sounds that sounds like a great project. Well, yeah, I got a lot to write. Uh, yeah, but, uh,
1: but hopefully, it all comes together.
0: Awesome. Well, it was it's it, it's good to talk to you at Cam-less. Um I was wondering if you had any stories about Camulus or. Memories of Camus,
1: Yeah. Um, no, I think CAMWIS is is a great event. Um, I haven't been to CAMWIS uh, too many times, but but I do remember um, my first CAMWIS when I was a graduate student, uh, uh, which was in Oklahoma City. And um, just the feeling of CAMWIS being a breath of fresh air in comparison to the, to the SCS, which was then the APA. But um, not that I don't also enjoy much about the and the SES, but... Uh, it's
0: different. <laughs> but it's, it's a very
1: different atmosphere, and I think as a graduate student, that was really encouraging um, just to come uh, to to CAMWIS to sort of get, get back to my Midwestern roots uh, um, in some sense. But, uh, but yeah, also uh, just... You know, I think people are here um, really to engage with other scholars, <clears throat> to reconnect with friends, um, just to exchange ideas in a sort of more relaxed and low-key environment. And, and so in that sense, I think CAMWIS represents kind of the, the best of our of our discipline in, in many ways, and I think it's kind of a beacon uh, um, for what we should, should strive for. Yeah. Um, but, but I think the, the field would be so impoverished without CAMWIS,
0: without absolutely. Awesome. Well, I, have, I have one final question. This is the, the first Camus podcast interview. Um, mm-hmm. And in your first email to me, you said you were just hooked on, on podcasts. And I was wondering if you, you know, what your thoughts on podcasting are, what your thoughts on sort of the, the potential for podcasting in, in classics or, or in academia, or if there's just any, any good podcasts you're listening to right now oh yeah um well i maybe maybe totally different (laughs) maybe it's you know you're getting away and that's that's great too no i think
1: i'd reveal a lot about myself (laughs) by telling you what's on my my stitcher playlist um but but i'm a nerd at heart and so it's uh dungeons and dragons podcasts and uh, and things like that um but uh, they're really good audio dramas and i think in that sense um it's a It's a democratic medium because really big, cool ideas can get made and get told on a much smaller budget that could never be made on on TV. And and so I think you see a lot of brilliant storytellers um, uh, finding audiences um, uh, uh, and... Um, so I, I guess that's one of the things I like about listening to, to podcasts for for entertainment. Um, but I think that's also transferable, maybe to to academia. Is I think and um, podcasts can um, yeah provide a, a forum for people to get their ideas out there. They can um, provide a forum for us to I don't know um, uh, share news about the field and to maybe amplify um, causes or, or voices of Departments um, that that are struggling or need support and that are embattled uh, at institutions or um, or you know depending on some different ideas that are out there you know there are some ideas um, you know that that scholars have that maybe aren't. Uh, where print, uh, you know, a journal publication or a monograph isn't the right venue for that, but these are sort of rigorous scholarly ideas that deserve to sort of be put out there. Um, uh, and, you know, I know some scholars use blogging or, or Twitter as one venue for that, but I think um, but I think a podcast is, a, is another great way uh, f- f- of doing that or uh, more of making... Uh, debates um, between scholars or exchanges of ideas more accessible to people who might not be able to attend conferences, uh, whether they're big conferences or, you know, even small local conferences that have, you know, great lineups of, you know, 10 or 12 very prominent, distinguished scholars um, uh, that we would all love to be a fly on the wall and listen to. Well, you know, maybe podcasts are a way to um, to sort of uh, get some of these ideas out there and, and sort of enable others to and to see sort of where the the field is is taking shape. So, uh, so yeah, I um, I think this is a is a great idea that uh, that you've taken up, and uh, and I think there are there's so many possibilities. I'm excited to see the, the directions that it goes in.
0: Awesome, great, glad to hear it, and and thanks for coming on this the the first Camos uh, podcast where we're actually talking to people live.
1: Well, hey, thanks a lot, Sam, for having me. This was really a lot of fun.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review wherever you downloaded it. You can reach me at podcaster at camws, C-A-M-W-S, dot org, with comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes. Thanks for listening.